This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit healthcare sharing ministry that allows you to control and manage your own healthcare and choose any doctor or hospital in the nation. If you're a freedom-loving American looking for contract-free healthcare, call now, 855-585-4237, or go to libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT for more information, libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. This is Janet Mefford today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the word of God says it, I believe it. And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Thank you so much for joining us. Wedding season is almost upon us, and everybody loves to see a man and a woman come together in holy matrimony. But before you get married, there are some wise steps you should take to ensure that you really know your future spouse and are on the same page when it comes to the most significant issues you'll likely face as a married couple. So we're going to get some advice on this important topic today from Gary Thomas. Gary is the best-selling author of 20 books and serves on the teaching team and as writer in residence at Second Baptist Church Houston. Today we'll be getting some essential marital advice from him as we discuss his book, Nine Essential Conversations, Before You Say I Do, co-written with Dr. Stephen Rebecca Wilkie. Gary, so great to talk to you again. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Janet. Thanks for calling. Well, it's great to have you here. This book was written as a guide for couples, obviously, who are wanting to marry. What would you say is the value in actively preparing for marriage rather than going into it saying, well, we love each other. It's all going to be just fine. Well, I, I wrote it with Dr. Steve Wilkie, and he told me his stated reason was this, Gary, these are the nine conversations to make sure nobody has to see me. <laughs> he, he, he's been doing marriage counseling for so long, he says, these are the issues that bring people into our office. And so if we can talk about it ahead of time to make sure it's a good match, either confirm, yeah, you're acting wisely, or really getting couples to consider Maybe there's some questions we haven't asked yet that we really need to ask. Well, right. Now, what would you say the number of couples are who actually seek counseling before they get married? I mean, running in Christian circles, most of the people I know who got married and my husband and I, we all went for premarital counseling to try to go through some of these issues prior to getting married. But is that the norm or not the norm in your experience? It's not. In, in Christian circles, it's far more common. Uh, but even then, a lot of times, it's just meeting with the pastor to plan the, you know, a, a, one meeting and then planning the sermon. And, and Janet, I've, I've seen the stories that are just heartbreaking. I think of a couple where the guy came to me and he said, I've really believe God has called me to go overseas and to, to serve him there. And my wife doesn't want to leave the Midwest where our family is. What are we supposed to do? And I said, how long have you been married? He said, nine months. Oh, wow. <laughs> Didn't you talk about this? He goes, well, we thought we had. Uh, and those are, once they were married, I said, well, I'm, I'm going to be honest, she wins. <laughs> you, yeah. you can't bring somebody overseas that doesn't really want to go there. But those are the kind of conversations where ahead of time when couples go through them and understand, and, and that's really what this is. It's a guide to begin discussions. It's not a book that just pours out more information. It's really designed to elicit information from each partner so they can see, yeah, this this makes a lot of sense. Oh, yeah. Now, six signs he or she isn't marriage material is one of the sections you have in your one of your devotionals, actually, throughout your book, which I think is good because some of the things on this list, these six signs that you mentioned about the readiness of your, you know, your potential spouse to get married aren't necessarily what I would have predicted are on the list. Things like he or she is a taker or he or she is lazy. So it seems like you're really kind of focusing on some character flaws. Is that right? Right. 
Absolutely. And and that shocks uh, people. But it, again, it's just Steve and I can kind of tell people that being married is dramatically different from being married. And I think uh, being married is dramatically different from being from dating. And I think a lot of times younger couples don't realize how much work life is, particularly when you have kids yeah. and you've got a job and you're keeping up a house and you're having time for the kids and having for each other. If you marry a perpetually lazy partner, even if they were the life of the party when you were dating and they made you laugh so much when you were going out, as a spouse, that person is likely to frustrate you to no end. Yeah. Um, and the same thing with takers and givers. Sometimes that sounds selfish, but if you want to live a life of giving – and you marry a taker, your ability to give is going to be cut in half. It's going to be divided. They will resent that you're not spending all the time on them. They're not going to be inspired by you. They're going to resent what you do. And so if you want a life of seeking first the kingdom of God, where you're pouring yourself on God's service, you want to align yourself with someone who has that same aim. Well, right now, when you're talking about identifying whether or not you're dating a taker, how do you figure that out? I mean, some of these things are a little bit easier to pinpoint early on than others. If somebody is a taker, what, what should you look for, for example? Well, here's an example I've given couples before. Uh, takers always make it about them. You, you can really divide the world into those two groups, takers and givers. And the main difference is that takers get joy from receiving and givers get joy and satisfaction from giving. So when I say that uh, takers make it about them. Let's say you're meeting for dinner and you get into a minor fender bender. If you're dating a taker, you, you call up, look, I'm sorry, I've been in a small accident. And their response is going to be, why would you do this to me? I feel like an idiot sitting here in this restaurant. I mean, can't you just leave? And well, even the scene of an accident could be considered a felony. I really think I should stay <laughs> for our future. But rather than having empathy for you, can I help you out? Can I make a call? Do you need me to come pick you up? They're making it about how it's impacting them. Yeah. Sometimes another test I like to give is that sometimes takers will give if they think they can get something in return. Hmm. So if you're married to a taker and say, hey, hon, it's, it's been a couple months since we've seen my parents really like to go out and see him this weekend. And the taker realizes, yeah, it's probably fair. It's been a long time, but he's got to turn it around. Well, fine. We can go see your parents as long as you fill in the blank. And, and he may not even realize he's doing it, but the thing is, he just can't help trying to get satisfaction. Well, if I'm going to be forced to do this, then I want to be able to get that into return. And so we talk about setting up times where you can sort of test on your dates. You're, you're thinking about it. You're being thoughtful. Does this person get joy in giving to others? Or is life really about what they can get from others and take from others? And if you want your kids to know that it's a joy to be parented or make them feel like they're a bother to be parented, um, you want to make sure you marry a giver instead of a taker. That's great. And, and it's kind of funny. I, I think the stereotype, but I think there's a lot of truth to this, is that girls tend to think, ah, if my husband has or my husband-to-be has these big flaws, I'll just change him, which we know. we Those of us who've been married a long time know that doesn't happen. But, you know, how do you talk in particular to a bride-to-be and say, don't go into a marriage thinking if you have a number of these characteristics in your future mate that he's just going to change through the power of your love? Well, negative traits can often get worse. We really warn them in the, in the chapter on conflict resolution that if your 
future husband or wife, let's just say husband, just use that for that, is a little too angry while you're dating, he'll be much too angry after you get married. Mm. Dating gives you a time to cool off. Dating creates space. It's not quite as intense. So rather than marriage making your relationship work, it might make it more difficult, which explains, of course, the divorce statistics that we see everywhere. Sure. So when you're talking about what you call the doubt-free wedding day, is there such a thing as when you have a couple coming in and they have no doubts whatsoever? I think there are some Christian couples who do wrestle with this. Well, you know, nobody's perfect. I'm not going to be marrying somebody who's, you know, fault-free, obviously, and neither am I. But how do you go into your wedding day doubt-free? What is the, really, what does that mean? Well, and I'll be honest, my co-author, Dr. Steve Wilkie, doesn't like that phrase as much. What he would prefer, and maybe it's fair, um, but I'm, by that I mean you can be confident that this is a wise choice. Look, none of us know what we'll face in life. Uh, there could be medical issues that we have no clue. I've had friends where one is diagnosed with MS, one goes through a series of cancers, uh, one falls into depression when they, there's never any indication that before. There could be catastrophic challenges with childbearing or the inability to bear children or unexpected unemployment or financial challenges or whatnot. We don't know what we're going to face in the future, but here's the thing we can choose the person that we face that future with. Great. And if we make a wise choice based on character and faith, and we know they have the relational skills to make a marriage work, and we've talked through the questions that most often tear couples apart, and we find that there's agreement, and we're working with a marriage mentor who says, yes, I can give my blessing. I, I think you both are being honest. I, I, I agree with your assessment. We can at least have confidence so on the day we get married, if, if there are those little flutters or those uncertainties, because, look, let's face it, it is such a big commitment, we can still have confidence and say, you know what, we have prayed through this, we have talked through it, our mentor feels good about it. It's a wise decision. Yeah. Gary Thomas, we're going to pause and come back talking about his book, Nine Essential Conversations. Before you say, I do, you're listening to Janet Meffer today. This is Janet Mefford. On a 100-degree day in Ethiopia, Africa, hundreds gathered for Sunday worship outdoors, and some walked an hour to be there. Afterward, 30-year-old Cademan frantically copied scriptures from an old Bible to a piece of paper. Then his face turned sad as he closed the Bible and handed it back to its owner, one of only a few in that church of hundreds to have a Bible. You see, Cademan loves the Lord, leads his family, and is faithful at Sunday worship, but he's never read a single verse in his own Bible because Bibles are very difficult to obtain where he lives. Whoever comes our way and is able to give us a Bible, it will be a great blessing. Through the ministry of Bible League International, you can send God's Word to a new believer in Africa. $5 sends one Bible. $50 sends 10. Call 800-YES-WORD. 800-Y-E-S-W-O-R-D. 800-YES-WORD. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com.
Thank you. Hi, this is Janet Mefford. If you're in need of a new healthcare program, but you missed the open enrollment deadline in December, it's not too late. A special enrollment period is taking place now through August 15th. During this time, you can enroll in the healthcare program of your choice without the need for a qualifying event. This means you can now enroll in a healthcare sharing program from Liberty HealthShare with memberships for individuals, couples, and families. You can find a variety of options to best suit your medical needs. Plus, you really can choose the doctor and hospital of your choice. Best of all, membership options start for as low as $199 a month. More than 200,000 Americans trust Liberty HealthShare for their health care needs. What are you waiting for? Discover more about the power of sharing at libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT today. For more information, call 855-585-4237, 855-585-4237, or libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT, libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. This is Janet Mefford Today, and now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. Well, it's great to have you with us, and great to have with us Gary Thomas. He is a best-selling author, and his book, Nine Essential Conversations Before You Say I Do, is some really great stuff to consider before you get married, and maybe you're getting married sometime this year. If so, you're going to want to stay tuned. Gary, we were talking about some of these conversations, you know, what you should look for in a mate and, and have these conversations before you actually get to the altar. But one of the things that I think is extremely important that you address is that marriage is a covenant. And boy, we don't talk about that enough. The issue of divorce. How do you advise couples to, you know, address that tough issue before they ever get married? The covenant view of marriage means that it's one-sided. I am committed to you until one of us dies. Now, there can be occasions, Janet, I believe, rampant, uh, unrepentant infidelity, abuse, and, and certain things where it, the, the spouse may just decide, I'm declaring this marriage at an end, but that's not anything that you're doing. You're just admitting what they've taken away. But it's the covenant commitment that God has toward us. I'm entering to this, I'm committed to this, as opposed to the contractual view that you do your part, I'll do my part, and at the end, if we're both happy with each other, we'll keep it together mm-hmm. and we'll see how it goes. And the reason for that is simply that most marriages will be tested. Most people, not all, but the majority, I say, there'll come a day when they say, man, did I make the best decision? What was I thinking? And it usually is short-lived, but when you don't waste time on it, look, I've made my decision. I'm committed to this. I have made a covenant, not just the two of us, but with my God, that we are going to see this through. Then it allows them to work on improving the relationship, addressing the issues of the relationship, rather than running from the relationship. If you live with a contract mindset, when things get difficult, you're saying, well, maybe there's a better option out there. With a covenant mindset is, okay, it's not everything I want right now, but how can we make it the best it can be at this point? That's excellent. Yeah. I mean, that's the way to do it. Because if you're talking about marriage merely as a contract, contracts can always be renegotiated. That's not such a good deal when we're looking at the Bible's (laughs) definition of marriage. That doesn't work at all. Not at all. Yeah. Yeah. So now when we're talking about forming a marriage, you know, coming together in marriage, you say, and I love that you said this, in most instances, you're not just becoming a couple, you're starting a family. Yes. What kinds of discussions should engaged couples have about family and children before they get married? What kinds of things should they target and get through prior to going to the altar? Well, we get into the nitty gritty first. Do you want children? 
how many, when, are you going to space them apart? The one question that comes out here that comes like, man, we never thought about that. If you can't have children, what are you willing to do to have children? Um, Some of the infertility treatments can be very expensive. So we say, are you one that would say, I don't care if we go into debt. I will do everything possible. Are you one to say, well, we would rather adopt? Or if you you can't have kids, do you still want to adopt? Where do you want to raise your kids? Is somebody going to stay home full-time? to watch the kids. What is your view of discipline? Just trying to see that these don't become fights, that they're going in with one mind. This is about how many kids we have, and this is how important it is to us. And um, just getting them to look at their motivations. Would there be any deal breakers? For example, you mentioned talking about your different disciplinary methods, and some young couples might not even know until they have children what's going to come out. But is there any kind of deal breaker that you would see a couple having while they're having that discussion? In other words, if you had one of the partners having been in a very abusive home and and one of this, you know, the father, for example, or the father-to-be would say, well, if I had a kid who did that, I'd beat him with a bat. I mean, obviously that would be a deal breaker, but what what would you look for as far as red flags when you're having that discussion? Well, what you said, that, that it's agreement. Again, more than I'm trying to instruct couples, I'm trying to elicit from them the philosophy they've already said. And, and obviously, if it's not biblical, um, we're going to address that and deal with it. But do they trust each other? They realize we may not discipline in the same way, but I respect him. I respect her. I think we can work together. I think these are complementary styles rather than styles where if you do what I think you say you're going to do, I'm going to call Child Protective Services and they're going to take the child away. I mean, you want to yeah. know that <laughs> right. uh, going in that you're on the same page. Right. I'm using, of course, an absurdity to make my point. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, that that's, that's definitely a red flag. Something else that obviously is going to be a big, big issue is how you handle conflict. What do engaged couples best do as far as having a conversation about conflict? Because what do you talk about when you're engaged and you're in love and everything's rosy and wonderful, but you know you'll fight down the road? How do you even get that conversation going in constructive ways? Well, we talk to them on the fight or flight scale. Where do they go? You know, and it's interesting as I've talked with couples, if they give themselves a number one to 10, they can start to see, okay, so you're going to have to draw that person out and you're going to have to give that person space. One person, he wants to go right away. She might say, well, I need you uh, to bring me along. And then we get very clearly into if you're having a disagreement and you can't come to an agreement, who can the other person talk to? And I get specific. I, I want names because what I've seen, Janet, is that often couples will fight not just about what started the fight, but about who so-and-so talked to Ooh, about it. Yeah. And, and you get a second fight. I'm like, you know what? Let, let's keep it to the one issue. Um, I don't mind if you go to a pastor. I don't mind if you go to that friend. Don't you dare go to my parents. Don't you dare to go to her sister or something like that. Yeah where they know ahead of time, okay, if we're not coming to an agreement and we need to process it, this is a safe person that my spouse thinks I can process it with. I can get counsel and it's not going to become a separate fight. So it's just learning to become familiar that conflict can be a valuable tool to understand each other, to grow in your love and and understanding of each other, uh, or it's going to tear you apart if you learn how to handle conflict in a healthy way. That's good. I, it, something else that comes to mind is a lot of us as Christians always go back to the verse, don't let the sun go down on your anger. <laughs> but in practice, that doesn't always work. No, no. <laughs> how do you it, deal it, with that? 
Yeah. It, it's one of those proverbs where it is mostly true, but we can't take it as literally true. I, Janet, I have said to couples about this. If it is 2.30 a.m. and it's getting worse and you're just at loggerheads, I've said, for all that is good and holy, go to sleep, get at least seven hours, wake up, have a cup of coffee, and then start it up again, and you may find that it's already gone away. What it means is not to let bitterness settle, not to be a, a stonewaller who refuses to deal with it or who's just going to let it go as if it's going to go away, but to take that literally. I've actually seen that do great damage. Some people need to process. If you're married to an introvert, if you're married to somebody that tends toward the flight scale, they just might need some time to figure out what they're thinking, how they really feel before they can engage without feeling like they've lost or you have to lose. Right. So really, a lot of what you're talking about is just understanding the person you're marrying, their personality, their temperament. That that seems to have gone a long way when you're, when you're talking about these instances that you're mentioning with considering it all in advance. That's part of becoming one is really getting to know what motivates them. In the chapter on finances, I just say, are, do you get joy out of giving out of spending or out of saving. Yes. And it really elicits some fascinating conversations about what they've done and what they do. Some might have goals. We want to have this saved by the time we're 50 so we can retire. Some have said, I want to give away a million dollars by the time I'm 50. Another one saying, you know what? I want to buy that dress or that purse <laughs> or that new golf driver. Um, so it's, it's really getting into that. What do you feel comfortable with your spouse spending before they talk to you? Yeah. Um, Again, we're not giving them a number, but we're trying to help them find their own number so that when they're married, they understand it and there isn't going to be conflict over that. Well, and would you say money is one of the biggest issues that end up destroying marriages? I mean, how high up is that on the scale? I've heard different numbers along the way from from various experts on money is the biggest thing that breaks couples up. What is your opinion on that? Well, I would say it is, but not the lack of it, like people think. I counted, when we had the famous information about the Bill Gates divorce, yes. four of the top five richest people in the country have had a divorce or an affair. Wow. So a lot of money doesn't guarantee that it's going to be well, but it's how you handle money. In fact, one of those people who had gotten divorced from a very wealthy billionaire, this wasn't Gates, it was a different one, just said, I think that the type of personality that can create money like that can be really difficult to be married to for some interpersonal relationships. Now, I don't know if, if that's true, but I think it is going back to those root issues. Are you a saver? Are you a giver? Are you a spender? Are you comfortable with that? And, and really helping spouses find out how money motivates them. And I think if they can understand that, with each other, it can actually be something, again, that draws them together and they can complement each other. If they make assumptions, that could lead to a lot of bitterness and resentment. What would you say, Gary, is the number one thing that tends to be a deal breaker? You know, when you're talking to couples who are looking to get married, is there any one thing that above everything else ought to make you not get married and and just cool the whole idea off because it's just not going to work? The one that I've seen has caused the most pain is over the number of children, whether they want to have children or not. That's a very difficult one for couples to compromise on. And I've seen someone, they really want to get married. They really don't have kids, but they 
kind of suggest that they do. And then after they're married, they decide maybe we don't. And of course, Janet, you, we realize that's a modern discussion. Yeah. I mean, a hundred years ago to get married was to have kids. Yeah. Um, it, it's different that you can imagine getting married and not having kids today. But that's one where I would say it really is helpful going in because sometimes people say, well, if I have you, I guess I don't want kids. Five years down the road, 10 years down the road, as they're getting a little bit older, I, I guess I really do. Yeah. So I, I'd seen as a pastor, that's when I would say, don't compromise on. When you go into premarital counseling, this is my earnest plea, be honest, be transparent. I believe committing fraud in premarital counseling is one of the worst forms of fraud you can commit because you can't hide for the rest of your life. Yeah, exactly right. Gary Thomas, well, great book, Nine Essential Conversations Before You Say I Do. Gary, thank you so much. Great to talk to you again. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. God bless you. You're listening to Janet Meffer today. This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit healthcare sharing ministry that allows you to control and manage your own healthcare and choose any doctor or hospital in the nation. If you're a freedom-loving American looking for contract-free healthcare, call now, 855-585-4237, or go to libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT for more information, libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. This is Janet Mefford today. And now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. Welcome back. This is quite interesting. A new analysis from Lifeway Research on Protestant churches. Did you know that in 2019, well before churches were forced to close because of the pandemic lockdowns and thereafter, about 3,000 Protestant churches were launched or planted? but 4,500 closed. This was before the pandemic. And this is from data concerning 34 denominations and groups, which represent 60% of Protestant churches in the U.S. That's what Lifeway reports. So you had all of these churches closing, even though some were launched more closed than launched in 2019. It'll be interesting to see how those numbers show up when we do the full analysis on 2020 or 2021. The executive director of LifeWay, Scott McConnell, suggested in a statement that one reason for the decline in church plants is because denominations were more focused on keeping existing churches afloat. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if that's fully the reason. Christian Post writes about this. And they also add, with fewer Americans seeing formal church memberships as important, the demand has also likely fallen. I think that's more of an issue than we want to talk about in many cases, because we've had these stories of late. Let's go back to the story that came out at the end of March. This is also via the Christian Post. Fewer than 50 percent of Americans have formal church membership, and that's happening for the first time in 80 years. This was from Gallup Research. We told you about this at the time. But just to reiterate, because it goes along with this new data that you see more Protestant churches closing than opening. You may say maybe it was just a one-off, maybe it was a one-year problem, and after that, there's going to be a huge explosion in church planting, and fewer churches will close than open. 
Maybe, but when you look at the totality of these statistics, it's very difficult to look at them and say, yay, everything's going swimmingly in Christianity. Listen, there are a lot of reasons. I understand there are many, many factors that play into some of these statistics. There's a lot of yeah, buts, yeah, buts, yeah, buts, and bring up this particular issue and that particular issue. For example, when you're talking about Americans having formal church membership, that also could indicate that there are a lot of people who are Christians who just can't find a good church they want to formally join. And and there are a lot of people like that. I hear from you guys and I, I understand. I understand the problem with a lot of Christians who are very sound and love the Lord. They can't find a good church where they are. And I, I sometimes get a little frustrated because there are voices out in the Christian subculture who will scold those kinds of people and say, you're just too picky. You can't find a good church. Just find a good gospel preaching, Bible believing church and join one. As if by saying that one will suddenly materialize in your backyard. And I have to say to those wonderful people who are blessed with being able to have a gospel preaching, Bible believing church, that in many areas of the country, it's hard. And it's not just rural areas. It's in suburban areas. It's in urban areas. And I, there's so much an- anecdotal evidence to this effect that it's really quite undeniable. So we need to go a little easy on each other once in a while when we're discussing the issue of church membership or finding a good church. There are a lot of people who are looking hard and thus far have had a difficult time finding something that was even on a low level completely okay. I mean, you, you know, I think all of us who have been Christians for any length of time would have kind of a laundry list of what I wish my perfect church would be. And the old saying, you know, as soon as you find the perfect church, you're going to ruin it because you've suddenly joined it. I, I mean, we all know the joke about that, but I think all of us sort of have that list in our in our minds about what a perfect church would be. They'd preach the gospel. They would have lively worship. My perfect church would have only hymns. We would have an organ and or a piano, no drums, no none of the other worship band stuff. I just don't like that stuff. I'm not judging any of you who go to churches like that. It's just not my cup of tea. Give me old school. I like the old school stuff. You would have prayer. You would have lots of Bible reading. You would have great preaching. You would have wonderful Sunday school classes that weren't dumb down. They actually taught the word of God. You would have rich discipleship programs. You would have evangelism outreaches that were lively and godly. You would have a church full of people who knew their Bibles and wanted to know the Lord more deeply and studied their Bibles. The Bible study was out of this world. You had a prayer meeting every single week. You had most of the congregation, if not all of the congregation, coming to church every time the doors were open. I mean, you can go on and on. It Wouldn't it be great? Wouldn't it be great? Wouldn't it be great? You're not going to find a perfect church. You're not. You're just not. You're not going to find a perfect church any more than you can find a perfect spouse. Uh, I'm a perfect example of that. So we all know this. You can make your list of what you think would be ideal, and you will find that nobody and nothing will live up to your expectations if you have very high standards. It doesn't mean that you shouldn't have high standards. What it means is... People who are in search of a decent church no longer, I think, are going by these long lists of perfection. They're, they're saying, okay, I just want the bottom level. I just want a, you know, a sound pastor who's going to preach the gospel. I don't care about the music, whether it's a band or a piano or an organ. I don't care about this program or that program. I just want a church that teaches the Bible. You know, that, that's pretty basic. 
Let's go back to this story at the end of March from the Christian Post. While America remains a highly religious nation with seven in 10 claiming affiliation with some kind of organized religion, for the first time in nearly 80 years, fewer than half of them now say they have formal membership in a specific house of worship. This is again from Gallup. And in 1937, when Gallup first measured formal membership in houses of worship, some 70% of Americans had formal church membership. And that measure remains steady for the next 60 years, only starting to to decline in 1998. Now, I I will make a little remark. I don't have time to expound upon it in great detail, but I find it supremely ironic that all of this decline came amid a gigantic launch of a church growth movement. What was wrong with the church growth movement? Like I said, I would need hours to get into this. What was wrong with the church growth movement primarily was that it had a terrible ecclesiology. It was gleaned from Robert Schuller. That should be enough to tell you everything you need to know. Robert Schuller, the original hour of power, the self-esteem gospel, that's the guy who was the real father of the church growth movement. Bill Hybels was one of his disciples. We all know what happened with him. And Willow Creek has had an incredible impact on the entire evangelical movement. Thousands of churches, thousands of people in ministry have been affected by Willow Creek and which crashed and burned and not too long ago. But think about this for a moment. The whole idea behind it was let's go around, let's go door to door and ask people why they don't go to church. And when they tell you what offends them, let's just remove those obstacles and then they'll come to church. Well, first of all, The church is not a gathering of potentially converted people. I'm not saying unsaved people shouldn't come to church. I'm thrilled when unsaved people come to church. But the gathering of the church is the gathering of Christ's body. Theoretically, at least, it's supposed to be Christians, people who are already saved and growing and maturing in the Lord. It's not supposed to be a gathering of pre-Christians and primarily pre-Christians. And the church is not to cater to pre-Christians. Why? Because if you start going down that road, and we saw it in black and white and in technicolor later on, that when you do that, you end up dumbing down Christianity. You take out all the hard things about biblical truth because you don't want to offend anybody and you don't want anybody to get up and leave. And then you become this huge church with a gigantic budget. Now you really don't want to say anything to offend anybody and make them leave. So then you keep capitulating to the spirit of the age because the people who come there who just want a cool, casual, entertaining worship experience are never going to crave the words of the Savior who said, take up your cross, deny yourself and follow me. Being a Christian is hard. And that's something the church growth movement never told anybody because they wanted to make it so easy. We'll take the cross out. Does the cross offend you? Here, why don't we show you a skit instead? Because there's so many examples in scripture of the early church using skits to evangelize people. No, there, there's no example of that. So I think in a lot of ways, we're seeing the fruit of the church growth movement and it's bad fruit. And good trees bear good fruit and bad trees bear bad fruit. And I lay a lot of blame for all of this at the feet of the church growth movement and those who bought into it. What a train wreck. And now we see another new statistic that only 6% of Americans have a biblical worldview. This is from George Barna, who's just released this in conjunction with the Family Research Council's new conservative advocacy organization. They're rolling out this new group uh, structured on the issue of biblical worldview. But when we come back, I want to talk a little bit about what's gone wrong in our churches, because I have some thoughts on this matter. Stay with us. We'll be back on Janet Meffer today. 
many people in developing nations have no access to desperately needed medical care. That's why Mercy Ships brings volunteers aboard our hospital ship, the Africa Mercy, to give the world's forgotten poor the free medical care they need. We have an immediate need for registered nurses, especially with a pediatric specialty. As a volunteer nurse, you won't just give life-altering health care, you'll receive so much in return. It's an amazingly rewarding experience. You'll give hope and make a difference in the lives of those who have virtually no access to medical aid. It's such a fantastic thing to do. Everybody who I've met on this ship either wants to come back and do it again or they're already here for the second, third, or tenth time. So what are you waiting for? Show mercy to someone today. I would say go for it. Get more information and learn how to apply by visiting mercyships.org forward slash nurses. That's mercyships.org forward slash nurses. Why are three teenage girls walking 132 miles? I have a heart for the unborn because God does. In his word, he tells us that we are all image bearers. Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. The Ministry of Preborn introduces moms to their baby in the womb through ultrasound by letting a mother hear her baby's heartbeat and see her baby eight out of ten times she'll choose life. Our goal is to raise $1,000 for every mile. Will you help us rescue babies? Preborn invites you to sponsor Savannah, Phoenix, and Emily as they walk 132 miles for the unborn. 100% of your donation will go towards saving babies' lives. And during this month of May, through a match, your tax-deductible gift is doubled, saving twice as many babies. To donate, call 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229. Or there's a preborn banner to click at JanetMeffer.com. Be sure to mention you heard about the Walk for the Unborn on Janet Meffer today. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Well, I was sharing some data with you from Lifeway Research that with fewer than 50% of Americans holding formal memberships in churches, the highest number in 80 years, as the Christian Post reports, more Protestant churches are closing than opening nationwide and further decline, they say, appears inevitable. This is according to the data. So we have all these indications that we are not a healthy group of Christians in this country. We're just not. The, the churches that you go to and maybe I go to are sound and good and that's wonderful and they're preaching the gospel and teaching the word of God, the whole counsel of God, and that's fantastic. But in too many places in this country, it's not happening. It's more social justice and entertainment every single day that is proliferating in our churches rather than God's holy word and the worship of this triune, spotless, blemish-free, righteous God whom we are to fall before on our knees and worship worship and say, as Isaiah did, that my righteousness is filthy rags. We don't have that view of God. We don't have that view of God across Americans' churches, by and large. I I just, tell me I'm wrong. I would love to be proven wrong on this, but I don't see an overwhelming fear of God. Why do I say that? Because you look at the statistics on how people who profess to be Christians are living their lives. And again, we go back to the good tree, good fruit, bad tree, bad fruit scenario that the Lord talked about. Examine the fruit to find out what kind of tree you're dealing with. When you have the abortion rates, what they are among professing Christians, when you have the sexual immorality rates, what they are among professing Christians, when you have the leftist ideology that is completely in line with the left of the world, 
proliferating and you see people, especially in the millennial and Generation Z generations now turning against Israel in larger measure and becoming more and more and more radicalized in their views. You have to say something's wrong. Something is really wrong. And then add to that all of the scandals that we've seen in the last decade and, and it goes beyond that, but just in the last decade, look at how many scandals we've seen. Look at the sexual abuse crisis in the church. Look at what we've seen in terms of pastors falling into scandals. And and really, I, I understand we're all sinners, but that is just an embarrassment to the name of Jesus Christ. And we're all supposed to feel like we, we can't judge. We don't want to be upset. Well, go back and read 1 Corinthians especially chapter five, when the apostle Paul talks about sexual immorality and about judging the church. And he said, you are to judge the church. You're not to judge the world. The Lord himself will judge the world, but we are to judge the church because it is the job of Christian pastors and elders to make sure that the church of Jesus Christ is not tainted by all of this stuff. We've done a pretty lousy job in that regard. And I'm not trying to be overly harsh. What I'm really trying to say is it is my fondest hope and my fondest prayer that we we would rediscover as Christians who God is and that he's holy and that we're not. And that is why we need a savior. And that is why we need to be humble and we need to be repentant. I I went through an entire page of verses today on God being nothing like us. How many times have you heard a sermon or a Bible study on the topic of God being nothing like us? Yes, we're created in his image. He's not created in ours. Jeremiah 10, six, there is none like you, O Lord. You are great and great is your name and might. 1 Samuel 2.2, 2, there is no one holy like the Lord. Indeed, there is no one besides you, nor is there any rock like our God. 1 Chronicles 17.20, O Lord, there is none like you, nor is there any God besides you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. And on and on and on. Exodus 9.14, for this time I will send all my plagues on you and your servants and your people, so that you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. And I really appreciate some of these other verses that are just, they just cut through all of the bluster that is fed to us every single day. Numbers 23, 19, God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said, and will he not do, or has he spoken, and will he not make it good? In Psalm 50, 21, these things you have done, and I kept silent, the Lord says, you thought that I was just like you. I will rebuke you and present the case before your eyes. And again, I referenced Isaiah and really go back to R.C. Sproul's great book, The Holiness of God, because that's the best book I've ever read on Isaiah and the holiness of God. It really is. It's a classic for a reason. But you look at what Isaiah, you know, experienced in the year that King Uzziah died. He saw the Lord sitting on a throne high and lifted up and the train of his robe filled the temple. And one cried out to another, the seraphim, that is, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out and the house was filled with smoke. So I said, this is Isaiah, woe is me, for I am undone because I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips for my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken with the tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth with it and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away 
and your sin purged. Also, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, here am I, send me. And he said, go and tell this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and return and be healed. And you can read the rest of it for yourself. But this is a precursor to Revelation chapter four. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder before the throne burned seven torches of fire. These are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne was something like a sea of glass, as clear as crystal. In the center around the throne were four living creatures covering their eyes in front and back. And the first living creature was like a lion, the second like a calf, the third had a face like a man, and the fourth was like an eagle in flight. And each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around and within. And day and night, they never stopped saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. I understand that what is going on in Revelation is what we will see, what we will experience when we have finally attained to the eternal life that Jesus Christ has promised to us. I'm not trying to bring heaven to earth because those things are still to come. The worship that we have around the throne of God, it's gonna be glorious. It blows my mind to even think I'll be there. I can't wait. But in the interim, when you go into a church that is potentially a church, but is feeding you social justice and entertainment, you have to sometimes scratch your head and say, what does that have to do with the Bible? We're back to the problem of Bible-free Christianity. And it's still a problem. It's always been a problem in certain circles. But when we regard these statistics on churches closing more than opening and people not joining churches in droves and people not having a biblical worldview, even though they believe that they do, we have a famine of the hearing of the word of the Lord. A lot of people talk about the Bible. A lot of people have Bibles. A lot of people hold Bibles. A lot of people will look at a verse of the Bible any given day. Maybe they'll go on a little devotional app in the morning and read a happy verse and just go on with their days. That's not what's going to transform you as a Christian. You will not be transformed uh, and your mind will not be transformed in a biblical way If you're just reading a verse a day or if you're just holding your Bible or looking at your Bible and not reading it and not studying it and not digging into it and not feasting on it, I can say it all day long. But if people don't actually love the Bible and love God's inerrant word, then why would our churches be anything special? And when you look at the mainline liberal Protestant denominations that have completely collapsed because they rejected the Bible, as given to them by God and decided instead to be all about social justice and the rainbow flag. Enjoy that. Enjoy that. But one day you're going to have to stand before God and give an account. And so will evangelicalism. And I love my evangelical brothers and sisters in Christ more than anything. We're a family. We're going to be together. But look at all the people who are potentially calling themselves evangelicals and don't even know the Lord. They don't even know his word. It's easy to take something and apply it to yourself and give yourself a title and you don't even know what it means. And I think there are a lot of people wearing the title of Christian who don't even know Jesus Christ. They don't know him. And Jesus said about these people, you know, (laughs) Lord, you know, didn't we do all these things in your name? And he'll say, depart from me. I never knew you. 
There are no scarier words in the history of the world than those words, depart from me. I never knew you. I don't want to be one of those Christians. And it doesn't matter ultimately how many thousands of churches are planted if they're not the kinds of churches that are glorifying God as holy and preaching and teaching his word faithfully to Christians who will feast on it and live by it and and grow to maturity in Jesus Christ, then who cares? We need faithful churches more than we need a lot of churches. So pray for that. Thank you for joining us on Janet Mefford today. Always a privilege to be with you. God bless you. We'll see you next time.